The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Today, I have Ozan Varol, author of Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. Daniel Pink reviewed the book and wrote, Your Thinking Will Be Bigger, Better, and Bolder. Ozan is a rocket scientist turned award-winning professor and author. He's a native of Istanbul, Turkey. Ozan grew up in a family of no English speakers. He learned English as a second language and moved to the U.S. by himself at 17 to attend Cornell University and major in astrophysics. While there, he served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rover Project that sent two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, to Mars. He built stuff that went to the red planet and wrote code that snaps photos of the Martian surface. Ozan then pivoted and he became a law professor to influence others to make interplanetary leaps on Earth. He graduated first in his class from law school, earning the highest grade point average in his law school's history. He's currently a professor at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. He's written numerous award-winning articles that are taught in colleges and graduate schools, and his work has been featured in a number of media sources, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, BBC, Time, CNN, The Wall Street Post. And as I mentioned before, he's author of Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. And that's what we're going to focus on in our conversation today. We learn a little bit about Ozan and his background and how he ended up where he is today. And then we dive into the book and we get a glimpse of a couple key strategies that you can actually draw out and put into practice in your own life. And of course, we finish on musing a little bit about how these strategies can be used to imagine the future of education. Ozan, welcome to the podcast. Bernard, thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking about this book. But before we do that, I'd love to give the listeners a chance to hear a little bit about your fascinating story. Can you can you talk about sort of uh, tell I don't know where we could we'd start. We could go back pretty far here. <laughs> but um, could you give us a little glimpse, maybe a long elevator speech of sort of how you ended up where you are today? And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, why the book. Sure. So I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. I lived there for 17 years before coming to the United States for for college. And uh, when I was growing up in Istanbul, I fell in love with astronomy and astrophysics. And, uh, and the interest started, I think, when I was like five or six years old. We, uh, we lived in a small apartment in Istanbul, and we would get really frequent blackouts. And I would get really scared when that happened. And my dad came up with this game where he would take one of my soccer balls and he'd light a candle and then he'd rotate the soccer ball around the candle to sort of distract me and teach me something new. The soccer, of course, was the earth and the candle was the sun. And those were my first astronomy lessons. And I was, I was hooked. I would devour every astronomy book I could find. I loved Carl Sagan's original Cosmos series. I would watch those on tape. 
and um, and I decided to come to the United States for for college and and moved here by myself uh, when I was seventeen, leaving my family behind. I went to Cornell and majored in astrophysics there. And while there, I worked on the operations team for the for what would become the the two thousand three Mars exploration rovers project. One of the professors at Cornell, his name is Steve Squires. He's the, he was the principal investigator for that mission. And before I, I got to Cornell, I wrote him an email from, from Istanbul just asking if he was, if he was hiring. And I, I sent him my resume and got an interview and got this amazing job that really was one of the, uh, the highlights of my life. Um, so I did that for four years. But then towards the end of college, my interest in astrophysics or continuing to study astrophysics at the PhD level uh, began to to wane. I've always been more interested in practical applications, and a lot of the classes I was taking felt really theoretical to me. I love working on the Mars mission, but I didn't love the substance of the classes I was taking. So I I decided to to try something new, and I, I found myself gravitating more towards the physics of society. And, uh, and I decided to go to law school. Um, I went to law school and practiced law for a few years and then went into academia and became a law professor. So I ended up living, uh, living multiple lives in this, in this one lifetime. And, and I've learned so much from each of these experiences and, and grown in so many different ways. To the extent you have any specific questions, Bernard, about, no, <laughs> about that very general <laughs> overview, I'm happy to I'm happy to answer them. It, it's great. I am curious about this sort of astrophysics to law uh, transition. I mean, as you look back on it, what are the similarities or differences? What, yeah, any any have you thought through sort of what led you from one to the other? Sure. Um, I, I do think there are uh, more similarities than what might appear on the surface um, because astrophysics of course is about critical thinking but but so is law um, a lot of what happens in the in the classroom and the practice of law is is about being able to to dissect a problem generate multiple hypotheses see points that that you're missing and so scientifically minded people actually tend to do really well in law school and I've now been professor, a law professor for uh, close to 10 years. And some of the best students I've had have been scientists and engineers. Uh, the analytical way of thinking that goes into, into law actually makes just intuitive sense to them. And they also tend to be really good writers, which, which I found somewhat shocking because they have very little writing experience uh, when they come into law school. But that also means that they uh, they haven't picked up some of the bad habits that that some of the uh, like the other undergraduate majors say in political science might might pick up in their in their writing. So with them, you're writing on a on a blank slate, which can be which can be useful. Um, so there are a lot of similarities, and then in terms of differences, and and this is one of the reasons why I pivoted from astrophysics to to law. Astrophysics always felt very theoretical to me. Whereas law, and I remember uh, one of the reasons why I went to law school is I took this, my senior year at Cornell, I took this, um, this law school, uh, this class that was taught by a Cornell law professor, but he taught it only for undergraduate students. And so you walked in, you were reading real cases, he used the, the question and answer Socratic method, um, and I, I just got hooked because we were reading these 
disputes between two real people who were <laughs> trying to solve a very real problem, very real dispute that they were having. So it felt much more grounded to me in a way, in, in that way that, that really appealed to me. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And so when we get to the book here, which I want to talk about, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, which by the way, I mean, when you have a, a review on the front cover by Dan Pink that says your thinking will be bigger, better, and bolder, that's a pretty good testament. That's a that's, <laughs> that's great. Um, and yet you went back to your rocket scientist days when you put the title on. And I'm wondering, obviously it, it, it uh, captures people's attention to say, think like a rocket scientist, but it doesn't say, think like a law professor. So I'm wondering sure. if you can talk a little bit about uh, the title and and maybe just take us through what led to getting these ideas on paper and then into this book. One of the things I realized after I left rocket science was that I didn't completely leave it behind. I actually took a lot of the skills that I picked up, not just in the classroom, but also uh, working on this Mars mission as well, and began to apply them to very diverse fields. First, it was law school, then it became lawyering, then it became academia. And so, and I, I noticed sort of having looked back on my life that one, I spent a good amount of time after, after college basically trying to teach people how to think like a rocket scientist. And I wasn't calling this that at the time, but it just became um, just second nature to me to be able to look at the world through this rocket science lens. And then, especially after I started teaching, I began to, to take that and apply that into the, the, educational, um, the educational setting as well. Uh, and in having sort of seen how these ideas work and, and apply in, in very diverse fields, and I did this with my consulting and speaking practice as well with, with, with businesses, that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to think like one. Um, and that you can take some of these, you know, seemingly elusive concepts from rocket science and apply them in your own work and life to make giant leaps. And so when I decided to, to write a, a, a book for general audiences, sitting back and looking at what I had done with my life and what I was writing about and what really interested me, it was teaching non-rocket scientists how to think like a rocket scientist. And, um, and hence, the, hence the title of the book. Yeah, that's great. So let's go ahead and dive into it here. Um, if, if someone were going to take, take uh, maybe two or three lessons from this book and, and they'd forget everything else, what, what are the ones that really float to the top that you'd say are, are, uh, you're going to get the most impact in your life if you pay attention to, the, to these two or three things? The first one would be reframing problems to generate better answers. And I dedicate an entire chapter to that concept in, in the book. And I think that has one of the biggest bangs per your buck uh, because we tend to live in an answer-obsessed world. Uh, we think answers are, are efficient. They are what get you through from, uh, from point A to point B. But often breakthroughs begin with a smart question and not a smart answer. And so if you can teach yourself, and I go through various different strategies in the book for doing this, to ask better questions, to reframe questions so you can see answers that may be lurking in plain sight, but you're missing, then you're going to be really far better off. Um, and I'm happy to share with, with, with the audience a story that I tell in the book from, from this Mars mission that I worked on. Um, 
So the year was was 1999, and then I was working on this Mars mission that at the time was scheduled to go to Mars in, in 2001. And 1999 was a was a really bad year for NASA. And one of the one of the bad things that happened was this this lander called the Mars Polar Lander crashed onto the Martian surface. Now this wasn't our baby, but the Mars Polar Lander was using the same landing mechanism that we were planning to use. Uh, and understandably, our mission got put on hold, and we started trying to figure out ways to well fix the landing system and devise a, uh, a safe way of, of landing on Mars. And as we were busy doing that, I remember distinctly one day, my boss, Steve Squires, he walked into the Mars room where we were working in the Space Sciences Building at Cornell. And, and he said, I just got off the phone with a NASA official who relayed a question to me from the NASA administrator, whose name was Dan Golden. And Dan asked what if we sent two rovers instead of one? Now, at the time, our mission was to just send a single rover to Mars in 2001, and that's what NASA had been doing. Every two years, they'd send one rover to Mars. Uh, and the question that Dan asked completely reframed the problem. And it was a question that none of us had ever thought about asking before, because we were too busy trying to, to fix the landing system and, and of course, the landing system was going to be fixed. But if, even if you did that, there are so many things that can go wrong when you're sending this delicate robot 40 million miles through outer space and crossing your fingers that nothing bad happens along the way. And instead of putting all of our eggs in one spacecraft's basket, we decided to send two rovers instead of one. And I'm so glad we did because those two rovers, sending two rovers meant double the science because they landed on very different regions on Mars. Um, with economies of scale, the second rover ended up costing much less than the, than the first. And these two rovers, which were named Spirit and Opportunity, and I'm so glad we ended up sending two because one of them, Spirit, lasted for six years on the Martian surface. And I should mention that we had, lent, we had built these rovers to last for 90 days. Uh, and the second one, Opportunity, ended up, ro and I still get chills when I say this, ended up roving the red planet for 14 years. Hmm. So 14 years into his 90-day mission, all because someone dared to zoom out and ask a question that no one had, had thought about asking before. Yeah. So that was uh, that really powerful. Um, and uh, I would say that in, in my own life and work, whenever those moments happen, those are some of the, the most meaningful moments where I can the, the, sort of that pivot. Um, and people will often ask, though, okay, so he asked that question. Um, how do you cultivate a mindset where you, where you can begin to ask that question? You're not sort of stuck in a certain frame or, or rut that sort of hides that kind of thinking from you. Right. I think there are uh, there are a number of things you can do, um, and I'll mention two here. One is to distinguish between strategy and tactics. Those terms are often used interchangeably, but they actually refer to different concepts. So a strategy is a plan for achieving an objective. Tactics, in contrast, are the, the tools you use, the actions you, you, you take to, add, to implement the strategy. And so it's helpful, and often we find ourselves focusing too narrowly on tactics, and in so doing, we, lo we lose sight of the, the overall strategy. 
But once you move from the what to the why, and once you ask yourself, what problem is this tactic here to solve? So once you frame the problem broadly in terms of what you're trying to accomplish instead of your favorite tactic, then you will discover other possibilities that might be hidden from you. So going back to the Mars example, if you frame the problem more broadly as the risk involved in landing on Mars and not just as a defective landing mechanism, then sending two rovers instead of one decreases risk and increases reward. So that would be, I think, one way of cultivating this mindset. The other way would be to bring in outsiders into the conversation. Um, Experts are often too close to the problem to to think differently. And, And don't get me wrong, expertise, I think, is really, really valuable. But if you're trying to do anything transformative, I firmly believe that experts should not work in isolation. They also benefit from the the input of of outsiders who are not as immersed in the problem. And so, you know, in in, in the Mars example, for example, the the question that all of us had missed came from the administrator of NASA, um, who wasn't you know as as deeply immersed into this problem, into this mission as as we were. And there's so many so many examples of that. Conventional wisdom is easier to tune out when you don't know what the conventional wisdom is. And so amateurs are really good at asking those quote-unquote dumb questions, which are actually not dumb at all. They often go to some like fundamental aspect of the problem that's right underneath your nose, but you're so close to the problem that you're missing it completely, which incidentally is one of the reasons why I love teaching. As I especially love teaching first-year students, first-year law students, because I, they ask me these questions that, again, that somebody else might call dumb, but they're not dumb at all because they go to some assumption that I'm taking for granted. And some of the best, best papers I've written, I think, academic papers I've written, have stemmed from, from questions that, that I got from amateurs in class. That lends itself toward a really interesting notion because um, if the book, at, at first glance, it's thinking like a rocket scientist, it sounds like it's very much just about me individually, but everything you just described called for community. It was uh, sort of thinking together with others. Absolutely. And we do benefit from um, shifting between those two mental states. So working in isolation and then coming together to share ideas in a a community setting and then going back to working in isolation. Um, Because if you just do the I worry about the sort of the open office plans and and always on technologies like Slack or even just your typical brainstorming session where you throw people into one room and expect them to come up with creative ideas. People often benefit, especially introverts, from being able to think about a problem on their own first and then get together with a group um, share ideas, benefit from the the input and feedback that you receive from from your peers, and then go back. So cycling between connection and isolation and research that I cite in the book bears us out as well. Tends to be the the ideal setting for generating original ideas. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And um, and so let's say we've mastered we re, we're reframing our problems to generate better answers. We have that. And we're perfect at it now in our life. So we move on to the second of the of the three most important pieces. What's the next one that you would draw from the book that say that this is really worth your time? 
The other one that immediately comes to mind is, is first principles thinking. So first principles thinking require, and it's a, it's a concept from physics, but it's been applied in many, many fields. It requires you to hack through existing assumptions in your world as if you're hacking through a jungle until you're left with the fundamental components. So it's the way of looking at a complex system and distilling it down to its non-negotiable raw materials. When you do that, instead of letting your original vision or visions of others shape the path forward, you abandon all allegiances to them. And the example I cite in the book for that comes from from Elon Musk and SpaceX. When he was starting uh, SpaceX or thinking about starting SpaceX, he was shopping for rockets to send the spacecraft to Mars. He looked to buy rockets on both the American and the Russian markets, but the rockets were way too expensive, even for his budget. And he was about to give up until he realized that his approach was, was flawed. He was on an airplane ride um, coming back from Russia, empty-handed from a shopping spree. And he had an epiphany, which he arrived at uh, by using first principles. In trying to buy rockets that other people had built, uh, Musk realized that he had been playing the role of a cover band that plays somebody else's songs as opposed to an original artist that does the painstaking work of creating something new. And for him, using first principles meant just going back to the laws of physics and asking what's actually required to put a rocket into space. So he stripped a rocket down to his smallest subcomponents, the fundamental raw materials. It turns out that if you buy those raw materials on the open market, it costs like 2% of the typical price uh, of a rocket, which is a crazy ratio. So he decided to just make his own rockets from scratch. So if you walk through the halls of SpaceX's factories, you'll notice people doing everything from welding titanium to, to building in-flight computers. Um, Another related example is, is the idea of reusable rockets. This was the deeply held assumption in rocket science that most rockets that launch spacecraft into outer space couldn't be reused. They would plunge into the ocean or burn up in the atmosphere after carrying their cargo to, to orbit, which required entirely new rockets to be rebuilt. Now, imagine doing the same thing for commercial airplanes. You know, you fly from... Portland to New York, you land, passengers deplane, and then somebody steps up and just torches the plane. That's basically what we did for, for rockets for decades. The cost of a modern rocket is actually about the same, th same as a Boeing 737, but flying on a 737 is far less expensive because jets, unlike rockets, are flown over and over again. Um, and both SpaceX and Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' space company, com company changed that. and um, both companies have, I think SpaceX just hit 50 recovered and reused rocket boosters. And so what started as, as this wild experiment is now on its way to, to becoming routine. And it's, it's brought to us by, by first principles thinking. I used to use something similar um, when I was working with school leaders and they would invite me in and they wanted to know about innovations or trends or uh, something like that. And, and I learned after a series of conversations 
that sometimes I would spend a lot of time on a concept and no one was really going to adopt it. <laughs> I mean, they had their pre-existing notions of what was going to work and what was not. And so I learned to start with a, a simple exercise where I would I would draw from kind of the world of phenomenology and Husserl and, and some others that I'd read earlier in my life. And I would, uh, this notion of uh, what's essential, the essence mm. of something. Yeah. And I would always de describe the example of a ball and say, you know, what are the essential attributes, the important attributes, and the merely present attributes? So, so a ball has to be round on at least one sphere. People would usually get down to that as an essential attribute um, because you had to account for a football versus a basketball and other things like that. Um, and I would do something similar around um, what was, what are the essential attributes of the learning environment I would offer to these school leaders? Um, and what are those that are important and those that are merely present? And I found that by doing this exercise, we began to surface how far people were really willing to think beyond their current construct. Um, it, it, in some ways, it was a little depressing, I'll confess, because <laughs> it would lead to a much more narrow conversation than what I wanted to have. I thought we could really, if we really could get to first principles and people were willing to go that far, we could imagine something incredibly superior to maybe what was happening in one of their environments. So it seems to me that this first principles thinking, um, it's one thing uh, to think that way, but there's also some kind of emotional attachment or something else that keeps us from going there. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of it is just the status quo bias, right? You know, what, what you've done before, shapes what you do next. And I should mention, Bernard, that I love that exercise of, <laughs> of separating essential to, to present attributes, because often we assume that something is essential just because it's present. And that assumption in many cases is just not correct. So it makes sense to, to go through. And so going back to your question about how to get this, get over this emotional hump, it, it makes sense to just Every now and then, for what areas where innovation matters, to actually step back and 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 look at your processes and habits and assumptions, and ask, do I own my assumptions or do my assumptions own me? With each commitment, each presumption, ask, why am I doing it this way? And it's usually because, well, you've done it before. That's how you've been doing it before, that or that's how others around you are doing it. And ask, can I get rid of this or replace it with, with something better? Now, I'm not sure if that completely gets around the emotional problem um, that you mentioned, because you're right, at least in some cases, we tend to have our identity tied to what we're doing. So like, you know, if you, if you do CrossFit, you consider yourself a CrossFitter. Uh, or if you're into primal eating, you consider yourself paleo. And when your habits and beliefs are intertwined with your identity, changing those beliefs, changing those habits, changing those assumptions means changing your identity, <laughs> which, is a, which is a really, really hard thing to do. Uh, and so one, one thing that I try to do, and I do this even when I'm presenting academic papers, is to put a healthy separation between myself as a person and the products of me. So instead of saying, for example, that I argue X, Y, and Z, I just do a subtle verbal shift and say, this paper hypothesizes or this paper argues. And that subtle verbal trick just tricks my mind into believing that my ideas and me are not one and the same. 
And even though, of course, I'm the one who created these ideas, that healthy separation, uh, I think, makes it easier for me to to question what what I do. Um, and then there's also, um, as you asked that emotional attachment question, a um, a poem came to mind that I remind myself of, of frequently in moments like this when I feel like I have an emotional attachment to something. Um, and it's a Donna Markova poem called I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. Um, and she writes, I choose to risk my significance to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom and, which, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. And that motto, I choose to risk my significance, is something that I tell myself on a regular basis. Because it's only when you risk your perceived significance, your emotional attachments, and give up the story about what you should do and shouldn't do, that what comes to you as seed can spread to other people as as blossom. It's beautiful. Interestingly enough, uh, another interview that I did that will release on this podcast at a different time was with a scholar whose whole focus is on studying purpose, particularly mm. purpose in, in adolescence. And, and what I love about what you just shared, there's an incredible humility to it. There's this, so there's a sense of something kind of greater than my, my present perception of self um, that I think can go over well. I will say that in my own work as a leader and one who's charge has often been to move an organization faster than its culture is ready to move. That's been sort of the task that I've found myself in a lot. Um, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not an enviable task. <laughs> I kind of enjoy it. I don't know. But uh, um, is, is sometimes it can be perceived as humility, but other times I think the kinds of ideas that you describe in your book, uh, it can be exhausting for people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's emotionally exhausting because you're the contrarian who's, who's speaking up and, and we thought we had it figured out. And even if it's not the right solution, at least it's clear and clean <laughs> and we have a decision right. and we're going to move forward on it. And here, here you are um, posing this provocative question that, that just obliterates everything we were talking about or, or takes us in this whole different angle. So I'm, I don't know uh, if you have any thoughts about uh, how, how to deal with it really is it's a lot of work uh, and and that's why i like the title i think of the work of a rocket scientist as one that requires a level of rigor and asking a question that may have just doubled tripled or quadrupled your workload sometimes <laughs> <laughs> that can be a good thing of course but but no i think that the, the point that you raise is a fair one um you can't go through life questioning everything you do it's really efficient to reason by analogy, to just stick with routines and habits. And in areas where creativity, creativity and innovation doesn't matter, it makes sense to do what you did yesterday. I mean, so just to give an example from my life, like I, I copy other people's fashion choices because I don't personally care about fashion. Um, I listen to like top 40 radio a lot. Uh, I, and I listen to the same albums over and over again because I find it exhausting to sort of apply a, a first principles approach to music and try to find music on my own. Uh, and so I just copy what other people are doing or repeat what I've done in the past. But in areas where actually innovation matters, I do think asking those provocative questions, however emotionally exhausting they might be, 
are the way to go because it's the dissenters. And even if the, the, the viewpoint of the dissenter isn't followed, the, the questions asked by an organic dissenter really shape the conversation in a powerful way and lead the majority. And even if they don't adopt that minority viewpoint, lead the majority to, to see what they're, what they're missing. And um, I might be mispronouncing her name, but Charlon Nemeth, I think, uh, she's at Berkeley. She's done just great work on groupthink and, and the, the role of dissenters in, in a, um, in a, in a group thinking process. Um, and so, so yeah, I agree with you. It is emotionally exhausting, but if you're discerning about where you're deploying these provocative questions and, and picking the right time and the right setting and the right problems in, in, in deploying them, I think it's, it's well worth doing. Yeah, we're we're near the end of our time, so maybe I'll finish on on one question. I encourage the listeners to check out the book. You can it's available at the time of this recording by pre-order, but we'll see when it releases. I don't know whether it will be <laughs> whether it will be uh, available um, for immediate purchase or not at that point. But I know that people can actually get a pre-ordered uh, pre-release copy if they purchase it. Right. Um, right. So anyone. Regardless, whether you're listening to this before or after um, it's been released, there's a way to get a copy of the book. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast are involved in education in one angle um, from one perspective or another. I'm wondering if, especially given you work in a law school, teach in a law school, um, if you have any thoughts about how some of these ideas might be useful as we sort of prepare for changes in, our, in education, as we try to co-create a better, more hopeful, more humane, um, uh, more impactful education system? That's a big question to end on, I realize. It's a, it's a great question. One of the things that I try to teach my students is, and, uh, and I frame the statement in the context of, of being a lawyer, but it applies to every discipline. Uh, I tell them that the best lawyers know the opposition's arguments better than the opposition does. And to be able to, because to be able to rebut the opposition's argument, you need to know what that argument is. And if you can articulate that argument better than the opposition does, then so much of your job will be done for you. And of course, that becomes really hard to do if we're just using, only using direct instruction to teach our students. If um, intellectual diversity uh, cognitive diversity is not present in the classroom um, so that students are exposed to only one viewpoint and and not the other. And one of the one of the exercises I do, um, just as an example, in my comparative constitutional law class, when we cover modern authoritarian regimes, I used to just do a lecture on you know how modern authoritarian regimes are are different from their historical counterparts because they've you they've learned, how to hide anti-democratic practices under the facade of democracy. Uh, so th some of these regimes look democratic on the surface. They fill the, the checkbox criteria for democracy. You know, they've got elections. They've got individual rights in their constitutions. They've got court, a court system, a constitutional court. So if you just apply the traditional checklist criteria for democracy, they look like a democracy on the surface, but they're not because they're using seemingly democratic mechanisms for, for anti-democratic purposes. And I would tell my students year after year that no country is immune to these stealth authoritarian tactics, but, but I could tell that the lectures never resonated because my students would assume that, well, this only happens in you know, backward, faraway lands. Um, 
And so one year, and I still do this exercise to this day, but one year I decided to just throw my lecture notes away and adapt an exercise that uh, Lisa Bodell describes in her book, uh, which is called Kill the Company. And the exercise basically, and this is done in a business setting, but I applied it to the law school setting. In the business setting, executives are asked to play the role of a competitor. Um, So they give up their, hypothetically give up their current positions, play the role of a competitor and devise ways to put their own company out of business. And then they switch roles. They go back to being that company's executives and figure out ways to, to defend against those threats. And that perspective shifting is really helpful uh, because it's one thing to just ask the cliche question or the cliche statement, let's think outside the box, but it's something else to actually step outside the box and look at the box from the perspective of a competitor um, um, seeking to destroy it. And when we're, when we're trying to analyze our own weaknesses and see the weaknesses of our, of our positions and arguments, we're often too close to the problem to think differently. It's like trying to psychoanalyze yourself. Really, really hard to do. And so I took this exercise and applied it in in the authoritarian setting. And I I basically came up with this exercise where I told my students that they were just elected uh, the president of the United States and that their goal is to destroy the U.S. Constitution, um, to kill U.S. democracy. And so they spent days figuring out, putting together a plan um, to basically affect an authoritarian takeover in the United States. And then the next class, they so they presented their plans to the class, and then the next week they s- switched back to their current roles and found ways to, to fend off those, those threats. And the exercise is so successful, so much more successful than just me explaining to the students what these other authoritarian leaders do, because it really brings it home. Um, you know, it, when you go through that exercise, you realize that it's in many ways, it's it's harder to to protect democracy, to save it, than to destroy it. Um, and so that's something that I, and I, you know, and, and it's not the sort of thing that I could just tell all of my colleagues, oh, you should do what I'm doing. Uh, but they hear about it from students and how much they enjoy this exercise, and and then they 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 then start considering applying similar exercises in their classrooms. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, intriguing, uh, intriguing uh, way to do it. I, I've used to do some similar kinds of activities back in my days as a middle school teacher, uh, <laughs> creating scenarios. <laughs> I would actually get uh, a parental um, uh, opposition to it sometimes, though they felt like oh. I was raising raising these uh, rebels or contrarians, <laughs> little <sometimes>. little dictators. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you don't want to give them all of those tools; they might actually use them against you. <laughs> Ozan, you're doing really fascinating work, and your book is a gift. And I'm so grateful for you joining me on this show and sharing a little bit about it. And hopefully, the listeners will check it out for themselves. So, thank you for being on. This is such a pleasure, Bernard. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.